The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are continuing tonight with our discourse on describing, translating, commenting one of the most famous texts of yoga and I'm talking especially of the texts of yoga, of the traditions which are Hatha Yoga, Kundalini Yoga, Laya Yoga, precisely the type of yoga which we teach here in Agama. We were, last time when I read from this, we were in the middle of the third chapter where Gyaranda, a great yogi from the 17th century, from the 18th, 17th, 18th century, speaks with his disciple Chanda Kapala or Chanda Kapali and he describes to him yoga not because you can teach to somebody yoga in just reading a hundred pages of text like it's it's meant more like an allusion this text should not be taken literally because it's not about that one day Chanda Kapali asked about yoga and Garanda said bala 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 and then you what can come Chapan, Kala Chapande, Chanda Kapali, remember from this. This is like, you can be sure that Chanda Kapali knew already all these, and it is like his teacher reminds them. It's like, let's go together through all the techniques. That's why the teacher, Geranda, he doesn't feel the need to go into details, to explain too much. It's more like a remembrance. It's like, let's remember the system which I, Geranda, have taught to you, Chanda Kapali, and which you will carry further, becoming the next guru of this lineage, and so on. And in the chapter 3, he describes mudras, and in his opinion, mudras are fulfilling the purpose of getting stability. Stability is a very big word because it means it's used ambiguously on purpose and it means stability of the body, but it also means stability of the emotions, stability of energy, stability of the mind. And many, many people, when they look at their lives, they realize that their main problem is lack of stability, like people who cannot refrain from a million things, they are lacking stability. Geranda considers that the Kriyas described in chapter number one produce purification, that the asanas described, the 32 classical asanas described in the chapter two, they produce inner and outer strength, which means physical, but also psychological, emotional, mental, spiritual strength. And he has moved to the chapter three, which is where he plans to describe 25 mudras and these mudras he says they are giving stability stability you know it's exactly like some people would say I have a lot of aspiration and I have a lot of faith and all I wish is to have stability in my faith and in my aspiration what's happening if one day I have a lot of aspiration and two weeks later I lost it completely. What's happening if I have a lot of faith now and two weeks later I lost it completely? Lack of stability is a real bad issue after all 
That's why stability is much more important than stability, physical stability. Or if sometimes some people can consider stability a defect. Uh, not like people that are lazy and inert, they can be considered to be too stable. Like sometimes you have to move, you have to do things, you have to change, you have to learn, you have to transform at the same time. Please do not forget that this stability can be interpreted in the spiritual way, and there it's where it means a lot. So, Geranda says, first you acquire purity, then you acquire inner strength, then you acquire stability, and the next chapters will show us other values. We were somewhere in the middle of this chapter, and you already know, those of you who listened to any previous lecture on this chapter number three, you know that the mudras are much more elaborate. In the asana chapter, he used one, maximum two verses, perhaps once or twice, three verses for describing the asanas. And the enunciation was simple, and he kept it really short and simple. With the mudras, he definitely takes longer, a bigger number of verses, longer time to describe them and the effects are way over the top because many of the mudras are having very subtle functions many of them work with energy many of them are used in classical kundalini yoga for activating kundalini shakti and that's why most of them have very mysterious magical and like either paranormal effects or spiritual effects when you read the chapter on the asanas you almost get a bit discouraged because Geranda only in a few of them shows, like in the Mayura Asana or a few others, he shows that with this one you can reach enlightenment, with this one you can reach paranormal abilities and this and that. But with the mudras, as you see all the time, it's almost for each and every one of them. Last time we ended by commenting about the legendary Kechari Mudra, which is one of the most extreme practices in all of yoga, if not perhaps the most extreme practice, and which consists in swallowing one's own tongue in special conditions. I'm not going there. After he finished in, 13, in Shloka 32, in verse at number 32, that he moves without any further ado to the next of the mudras. I don't have them listed by number, so we are somewhere in the description of the 25 mudras. The next in his list is called Viparita Karani Mudra. He describes it in about four verses, and here it goes. He says, the sun or Surya dwells at the root of the navel, and the moon or Chandra at the root of the palate. So, he makes a very strange thing where he says something called the sun. Of course, this is abuse of language if you want it to be really scientific. But the sun, something which could be called the sun, like the plus pole, if you want, in electricity, is somewhere at the area of the navel, which of course we can relate to very easily. Because in the area of the navel, we do have an energy center, which not coincidentally resonates with the sun. Manipura chakra, the navel chakra, is actually the chakra that channels the energy of the sun. So it's very easy to say then that this spot is like your sun. 
This is the correspondent of the sun in your microcosm. The sun dwells at the root of the navel and the moon, called here Chandra, at the root of the palate. Here it becomes unclear for the person who doesn't know much yoga and hears these things for the first time. Because moon, the, if you have been in the first level intensive of Agama, you are going to say, well, the moon is that the best corresponding to the water element to the Svadhisthana Chakra. And that's somewhere in the pubic area. So what are we talking about the palate? The yogic tradition that uses lots of alternative symbols which are interchangeable and one of them as you have learned in the lectures on <coughs> Sarvangasana is that the area of the root of the palate, so the area about at the height of the mouth is the seat of a secondary chakra in yoga which is called Soma Chakra. This Soma Chakra the funny thing is that in Sanskrit Soma also means moon, not only Chandra, but Soma means a special moon. It's an alternative name to the moon and it's exactly like the Eskimos or the Greenlanders that are having about 50 names for the snow because they live in a world of snow. For them there is snow which is slightly wet, snow which is slightly dry, snow which is very frozen, snow which is blown by the wind, snow like this, snow like that. Living in a world of snow, that's the only variation which they have. They don't have words for snakes because no snake can survive in the Eskimo climate. But they have words for 50 types, 50 different words for snow. In the same way, the yogis, for example, they use alternative names for the moon, exactly as the sun has at least 12 different names. No. Surya and all the other names, like in Surya Namaskara, the 12 mantras. Exactly in the same way, the moon has about 16 names in Sanskrit. And one of them is Chandra, and another of them is Soma. To the uninitiate, these names can be identical, equivalent. But actually, Soma is a name which means much more, because Soma means full moon, not just moon. Soma means a subtle, delicate, refined Vishuddha Chakra type of the moon. Soma, at the same time, is an equivalent name for the nectar of immortality, which is also called Amrita, has other names as well. And so Soma is the Ambrosia of the gods. Exactly like in Greece, in India, the gods keep drinking all day long an inebriating and very beautiful drink called Soma or Amrita and that generates clairvoyance, longevity and a million other things and it also has the capacity that it prolongs life. It simply maintains people forever young. So when he says that at the level of the mouth, palate, whatever, there is the moon, they mean not just Chandra like in the moon from Svadhisthana, but it's an equivalent name. Sanskrit is a poetic, ambivalent language and they talk obliquely, especially in yoga texts. So he starts with a funny statement where he says the sun is in the navel and the moon is somewhere in the head area of the mouth. And then he makes a second statement. The sun consumes the nectar of immortality and thus man succumbs to death. If you wouldn't know what I said already, you wouldn't even make the conclusion. Like, the sun is there, the moon is there. And now he's telling me that the sun consumes the nectar of immortality. Amrita. 
what has that got to do with anything? Well, because the moon in the head is not Chandra, it is actually Soma, and Soma is the same word with Amrita, and that basically implies that somewhere in this part of your head, inside, the human being produces nectar of immortality. But as you produce it, exactly as you'd be producing saliva or other secretions on your mucous membrane in the mouth, what's happening next when you produce more and more and more and more? You swallow it. So it goes in the stomach. And what do you have in the stomach? In the stomach you have acid. You have the digestive fire. And the digestive fire, therefore, is just a symbol of the fire or of the sun. So basically, if you want to translate this physiologically, it would say, according to Ayurveda, your body produces a mysterious phlegm in your head, and as you swallow it, it gets annihilated. Well, the funny thing is that, yes, there exists precisely that. In the stomach, we are having a chemical compound, which is called MAO, or monoamine oxidases. It is a chemical, there is a family of chemical compounds, which are oxidizing the monoamines. There is a whole family of substances produced by the brain, and I could quote among them dopamine, serotonin, and most of all, dimethyltryptamine, the so-called spirit molecule. And if these by any chance are put in the stomach, your digestive juices contain MAOs, monoamine oxidases, and these are monoamines, chemically speaking, and these monoamines are oxidized. They are burned. They are corroded by the acid in the stomach. And then as they go lower in your digestive system, nothing happens. And therefore, it is right. We actually know of at least one chemical product where some things which are produced in the head, if they get in your saliva and in your digestive tract, they are chemically burned by the very contents of your stomach. So it's literally true. What it's, it's a wonder how on earth did they know this before the 19th century when chemical discoveries were made and the chemical elements were discovered and molecules and chemistry reached the modern stage. How did they have the intuition that something produced in the head which they call Soma or Amrita, as it goes down in the belly, it gets burned? The sun consumes the nectar of immortality and thus man succumbs to death. So they say death and aging is because you are burning your own nectar instead of putting it in your bloodstream and staying young like the gods from Mount Olympus. You are getting it in your stomach and thus you are ruining it. The process, the next Shloka 34 says, the process by which the sun is brought above and the moon below, while normally the moon is above and the sun is below, so the process by which the sun is above and the moon is below, so definitely the moon cannot drip into the sun because it cannot drip against the gravitation. It can drip when the moon is above, but if you turn it like an hourglass, if you turn it like a sand clock, then it doesn't flow from here to here, it, according to the gravitation of the earth, it starts flowing the other way around. 
So the process by which the sun is brought above and the moon below is called Viparita Karani Mudra, kept secret in all the tantras. And then he will just describe it because he first wanted to give a justification. Here he bothers to explain. And then the rest is simple. Carefully place the head and the arms on the ground, raise the legs and remain steady. This is called Viparita Karani. Those of you who study Kundalini Yoga here in Agama, you know that that's not really what Viparita Karani is. This description is just a bland description of Sarvangasana. Sarvangasana, the shoulder stand, nicknamed the queen of all asanas. Then you are going to say, those of you who listened my satsangs, my translation of the Geranda Samhita in the chapter about asanas, you're going to say, yes, by the way, it's very significant because we thought that when we described 32 asanas, we're going to describe the most important of them. And actually, Sarvangasana, which is one of the top three or one of the top five at the worst healing asanas of all yoga, like you should never omit Sarvangasana from your practice because it's a, it's a gem among asanas. And exactly Sarvangasana, which is so emblematic and so strong, we haven't heard it. How come that Geranda claims to speak about the 32 most important asanas of yoga and he doesn't describe Sarvangasana of all asanas? The answer to this is that somehow Geranda got it that the shoulder stand is not an asana but a mudra. He included it in mudras. And then we, if we want to restore it, we say, well, there are not 32 classical asanas. There are 33 because, uh, you know, Viparita Karani is not Viparita Karani. The interesting thing is that in the yoga tradition, there does exist a Viparita Karani mudra, a practice of Kundalini, which is quite intense and which here in Agama is taught as such. So in a certain way, it's like, Geranda didn't know what he was talking about, then why not call it Bora Bora? Why call it Viparita Karani exactly by the name by which a similar technique exists, but it's a full-fledged Kundalini Yoga technique, which means, after all, Geranda seems to know what he was talking about. But if he knew what he was talking about, why didn't he describe the full, the full Viparita Karani and he described just a sketchy, Maybe he didn't want you to learn it from his book. If the book, if Chanda Kapala, his disciple, would be absent-minded and lose, forget his book into a restaurant, he didn't want you to find the book and to learn the system, and therefore he describes it sketchy, incompletely. I, the Geranda, simply has a different system of names, and therefore he calls what we call Sarvangasana, he calls it Viparita Karani, and then it's just a matter of names. Or actually he knows the full Viparita Karani from other texts, but he doesn't want to describe it clearly in his papers. It doesn't matter. The point is that what is described here, carefully place the head and the arms on the ground, raise the legs and remain steady, this is called Viparita Karani. On the other hand, if you place the arm and legs on the ground, and then you raise your legs, when you do the headstand, you do exactly the same thing. You place the head on the ground and the arms, and then you raise your legs, only the other way around than in the shoulder stand. So actually this description is so ambiguous that you can call the headstand also Viparita Karani. 
And if you think a little bit in the headstand, the sun is brought above the moon as well. Both Sarvangasana and Shirshasana, which is also not mentioned among the 32 classical asanas, that's the king of all asanas. Like two of the most important asanas of yoga were not mentioned among the first 32. No, it's obvious that something is amiss because almost every yogi knows that yogis stand on their head. Headstand is emblematic. When, if you tell to your family, I started practicing yoga, they look at you in a bizarre way and say, what, now you're standing on your head? What do you mean by that? Like, for people, standing on the head and yoga are almost synonymous. And therefore, the description of Viparita Karani is also applicable to the headstand. Because, and as a matter of principle, it's just the same. That's the beauty of some yoga texts. They use this twilight language and they say a lot of things without saying them. And when you read them, you remember a lot of things. And it's like a memory on paper. And then the people who are really outsiders, they don't really understand or they understand only a very little part of it. That's why here, Geranda speaks about Viparita Karani describing shoulder stand, head stand, and alluding to a full-fledged mudra from Kundalini Yoga. And then he just <coughs> ends in the Shloka 36, just telling you the effects briefly, of course. When we describe the shoulder stand, it's a page and a half of effects and benefits in your handouts from the first level intensive in Agama. Geranda doesn't have a page and a half because he speaks in just gems and pearls. Therefore, he has to try to describe things briefly. And he says, constant practice of this mudra destroys old age and death, which was expectable because he said if you keep the hourglass the normal way, then the moon drips into the sun and it is burned by the sun and this is how man succumbs to death. And of course you'd expect that if you turn it the other way around, that doesn't happen. Many people would say, well, that sounds nice and too good to be true and very simple. And still it sounds very teasing because you cannot stand upside down 24 hours per day because then you turn into a bat. You are not a human being anymore. So it's like, how does this work? Is it enough to do it five minutes in the morning and five minutes in the evening? Where is the threshold? Of course, all these things, you learn them from the living yoga tradition. Geranda just bothers to remind, like there is a Viparita Karani, the reverse, the story with the sun and the moon. Constant practice, like if you practice a lot, constant practice, destroys old age and death. One is known in all the words as, in all the worlds as adept. He uses the Sanskrit word Siddha, which is a very powerful word in the yoga tradition, and does not perish even at pralaya. So, the first statement was strong enough. It destroys a old age and death. That's a pretty materialistic statement. It still refers that you are clinging to this body. So, what more is there? And then he goes full on and he says, One is known in all the worlds as adept or siddha. So, it's exactly like you are a VIP in all the worlds. The funny thing is that if you are like Geranda or like Matsyendra, maybe if you walk through a city on earth, you wouldn't be known. The funny thing is that in the physical world, you are known only by very few who can see. But what Geranda says, that a person that has such an energy, 
such an aura, such an ability, such an exceptional accomplishment, if that person goes in their dreams and moves through the astral body, all the spirits, demons, angels, gods, humans, when they see his energy, they say, whoa, here is a Siddha, you know. It's like suddenly you are driving in a city and you see a Rolls Royce, you know, and you say, whoa, where is a Rolls Royce in this city? It's exactly like you are driving and meeting with Albert Einstein on the street or something. You say, wow, you know. Who is this? That can't be. It's like, it's a very important person. This shows automatically a very, very great mechanism that, remember, a Buddha, if he does not say that he is a Buddha, and even if he says that he is a Buddha, many people can say, yeah, right. You know, it's like, what do I care? You know, you just keep babbling nonsense. A Buddha may be unknown to the earthlings, but when a Buddha goes in the astral body projection, or if a Buddha interacts in a subtle way, there you cannot hide it. Now, remember the episode when Jesus comes to a synagogue and starts preaching. It's one of the early miracles of Jesus. And then as he starts preaching and he starts saying something pretty bland, like he starts pretty bad. He's not very good, very convincing. And he said, I came to bring you new tidings that your captivity is over. And they say, what captivity? Because the Jews were not in any captivity in that time. And he says, oh, the captivity in sin. So he sounds really like a, a bad preacher. And then one of the guys, one of the young men there, goes into demonic possession. And he starts... And as he goes into demonic possession and his father says, if, if you are worth something, help me now. You know, like you talked big words, but now we have an emergency by synchronicity, by a wonderful coincidence. And like, let's see what you are made of. You know, now show me your soul. And then the demon, while it is in that young boy, the demon starts saying, Jesus, leave me alone. What? How did the demon know that this dude was Jesus and was about to perform an exorcism on him? Because human beings could not see the aura of Jesus, which must have been something flabbergasting, something unimaginable. No. Human beings could not see it. For them, Jesus was just a piece of flesh like everybody else. But the demons could see that behind this piece of flesh it was something gigantic. So Jesus was not recognized too much by human beings, but he was recognized by the demons. When Jesus is asking Peter, and who do you say I am? You know, because everybody had funny theories about who Jesus could be. Then Peter gets courage and he says, I say you are the Messiah. You are the living Son of God. And then Jesus says, Peter... By saying this, you prove yourself to be blessed among men because flesh and blood couldn't have shown you this. Like, how the heck did you see me behind my flesh mask? Flesh is a mask. With flesh, everybody looks pretty much the same. Some are prettier, some are not. This, there are differences which are major yet minor because everybody looks as a human being. But when Krishna walks on the surface of the earth, people cannot see who Krishna is. 
But when Krishna puts two fingers on the forehead of Arjuna and opens his third eye, Arjuna goes into delirium and starts saying, I can see you swallowing the universes. You are the creator and the destroyer of reality. He sees. He suddenly sees. Well, that vision in the astral world, in the subtle world, in the causal world, it exists already. The people who are there, that's how they see. And therefore, when such a, a spirit goes there, they are recognized immediately. Even the inferior spirits can see that. There is a Christian story that when Jesus got crucified, he surrendered totally. He didn't try to use Siddhis, as some people aberrantly state, to stop his breath, to go into suspended anime. Jesus didn't do anything. He simply said, in thy hands I commit my spirit. And then he was drifting into what the Greeks called the Hades, a gray, dark underworld where the spirits of the dead would go. And when Jesus reached in the underworld, the Christian mystics who witnessed in Akasha this scene, they say even the underworld got afraid because suddenly it's like the sun was rising in a cave. Those guys had lived in a cave all their lives where it was perpetual darkness or obscurity and suddenly Jesus, like a sun, started descending there and the people from Hades asked themselves, what the heck is this guy doing down here? Because we never see anything like this down here. Those who shine like this, they go somewhere else. They never descend down here. So how on earth did it happen? Like even the spirits from hell or from the underworlds, from the purgatories, whatever you want to call them, in the moment when they were witnessing with the spirit of Jesus in his bardo, they saw him. They didn't need to be clairvoyant. In the astral world, everybody sees everybody with the astral senses. And therefore, here is what Geranda Samhita says. It says, one is known in all the worlds, perhaps less the physical world, that's the least obvious, as adept. The world being used is Siddha. Siddha is literally in Sanskrit meaning perfect. And in the Indian yoga tradition, in some lineages, it means spiritually perfect, which means a Buddha, an enlightened being. And in some, it just means a person who can walk on water and raise the dead. A person endowed with serious paranormal abilities. And therefore, a person who looks like every Tom, Dick and Harry, but who definitely is not every Tom, Dick and Harry. And that's what Geranda says. By performing Viparita Karani, either Sarvangasana, headstand, or the mudra, again, because he leaves it ambiguous on purpose, one is known in all the worlds as adept. Like you, you bear a signature in your aura. It can be seen that you are doing. And does not perish even at pralaya. There is a theory in the, the history, according to the Hindus, and Buddhists and many others, the history is cyclic. Only the Western philosophy, and especially Judaism, Christianity, has a very strange linear nor recurrent history. The world started 6,500 or 7,000 years ago, and it's going on until the coming of the Messiah or the end of the world, and that's it. It's a line. The Hindus have made that line into a circle. 
like it restarts again and again and again and again and thus we have cycles which actually when you look at nature with the spring and summer and autumn and winter and then spring again it actually corresponds much more as above so below why would be the year be a cycle the day be a cycle the precession of the equinoxes be a cycle the cycle of the moon be a cycle and the history not be a cycle like time is a cycle because that's how we see it around us as cycles so the hindus focused on cycles and when many 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 such cycles are happening that means approximately after four, four billion years or sometimes after four thousand billion years there are different units of measuring this the world is coming to a stage called pralaya and pralaya is a word which means total dissolution of the universe it would correspond in modern theories on cosmology to the famous theory of the big bang that 10 billion years or 20 billion years ago the universe exploded and now we are like fireworks going out in that explosion and sooner or later the universe will start collapsing back it's like boom and then it falls back on itself out of gravitation it starts collapsing until it becomes just one gigantic black star a neutronic star or a black hole and it becomes so gigantic and so heavy that when it implodes it ends by exploding again so the universe according to some modern cosmology and it's not confirmed it's a wild theory which strangely has some consonance with these old hindu buddhistic theories that the universe is like a heartbeat 50 billion years it's exploding 50 billion years it's imploding and then again and again <coughs> The time when the universe is imploded, and therefore it's dark, it's switched off, there is no life in, under any form, this is called pralaya, and the Hindus have also called it by the name the night of Brahma. Brahma, the creator, lives the universe as day and night, only that it's not just a human day, it's a day which is about 50 billion years or something like this. Actually, the Hindus think that the duration of a day of Brahma is some 4,000 billion years for trillion, or for some people go to 400,000 billion years they are different, the zeros are a little bit of a problem in Indian mythology like they can add and subtract zeros a bit freely and because of this it's not quite clear but just to make the long story short this simply talks about the fact that at some point the universe is taking a breath and then Vishnu is sleeping on a snake and the whole universe rests. When the whole universe rests, every atom from this universe is sucked back into that gigantic ultimate total black hole which sums up the universe. And therefore, there is no separate existence. There are no planets, there are no astral bodies, there, are, there is nothing. Everything is sucked into oneness. And therefore, of course, there will be no evolution, no planets, no everybody sleeps. There is a sort of a 50 billion, 50 billion year time where God rests. God simply says, enough, I need a day of rest. And then we start again another day of Brahma. In this pralaya, 
if differentiation succumbs, everything which is related to differentiation will disappear. Therefore, the idea is that you are launched into evolution. And your evolution says, Paramahamsa Yogananda, your evolution should take a million years from the average human being, which means there was one million years before, which means for two million years you are a human being. How many more million years have you been a gorilla and a cow and a chicken and a fish and a dinosaur and uh, amoeba and let's add generously another hundred million years. So maybe your one's evolution is lasting a hundred million years as a soul. Let's be even more generous than that. Let's say one billion years. One billion years gives you plenty of time when the day of Brahma is for hundred billion years. Which means wherever you are born, you kind of have the time to start to be an amoeba and an atom and a crystal and whatever and be a gorilla and a human being and a superhuman entity and still you'll have the time in by the end of that to reach to Buddhahood and to reach enlightenment. But what if you didn't? What if you are born just quarter of a minute before the pralaya starts? Then you won't really have the time. Like because souls are created all the time. And the history when Hindu mystics have been asked about this, they say at pralaya, whoever is not a Buddha, they are mixed. It's exactly like a potter's wheel, like exactly like a potter's workshop. And the man has a mass of clay and he has been making pots all day long. And then suddenly the clock is ringing and he says, it's five o'clock, I have to go and pick up my kid from the school. But he still has lots of clay. He leaves it for tomorrow, right? He just takes all the clay which is not done, smashes it back, covers it with a cloth to keep it wet. And he says, this cloth, this clay will become pots tomorrow. Which means, if you didn't make it by the end of the day of Brahma, you go back to the original source. You simply didn't make it till the finish. There is a deadline. And you have to reach Buddhahood until that deadline. And if you don't reach, tough luck. The universe can afford to take your Supreme Self back. Your Supreme Self is a drop from Shiva. Therefore, you are a drop from God. And God doesn't suffer if a drop went and didn't quite make it and comes back and says, better luck next time. It's not a problem from the standpoint of God you as attached, limited human beings may feel it like a sort of a punishment or a sort of fiasco. But from the standpoint of the divine consciousness, it's all a game and the purpose is not uh, any individualistic thing like this. And that's why the cosmic consciousness is happy that all the prime matter which didn't make it to Buddhahood is recycled, which means sometimes probably 99% of the universe. And that's why there exists this thing that if pralaya has come, if the last day has come, and if you are not in Sahasrara, in the crown chakra, in the moment when the universe vanishes, you won't be able to keep your continuity of consciousness. You won't be able to stay and watch the universe getting sucked into a black hole because you still are connected. You still have samskaras. 
you are not completely nirvikalpa. You are not completely in the void. If you are in the void already, what do you care about the big black hole? It means nothing for the void. But if you are not 100% one with the void, then when the universe gets sucked, you get sucked. And that's why everybody who didn't reach the best, the ultimate, gets sucked and basically gets annihilated. It's like you simply, your history gets wiped out completely and the slate is clean and the universe starts fresh again. Which means in the end of every pralaya, there is a number of lucky souls who already crossed that line. And those, those souls cannot be affected even by pralaya. Even when the night of Brahma comes, the soul of Shankaracharya meditates, sleeps with Vishnu, waits for the new day of Brahma, spends 300 billion years in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, in void, waiting for the next flashing forth of Brahma. This is what he alludes here. He says, if you do Viparita Karani, which in this case seems to point rather to Sahasrara, and therefore it seems to point to Shirshasana, to the head stand, rather than to a simple Viparita Karani like shoulder stand, and one does not perish even at Pralaya. This is a huge statement. If you become a Deva, if you become Surya Deva, when the Pralaya, that's the Sun God, in case you don't understand, if you become like Surya Deva, which means highly superhuman, when the Pralaya comes, Surya Deva will die. Surya Deva will be swallowed like nothing. Surya Deva cannot survive the Pralaya. He probably knows it. The interesting question is why doesn't he do some meditation to get to Nirvikalpa Samadhi to sort this out? Why is Surya Deva spending 20 billion years as Surya Deva and he doesn't pull the thumb out of his ass and move a few millimeters further up the ladder? Because he must be pretty close to the ladder. That is a totally collateral issue which has nothing to do with uh, Geranda Samhita. What Geranda Samhita says is, even if you become like Surya Deva, when the Pralaya will come, you will be melted together. Like they melt glass or they melt metal and then they recycle it. They make new objects out of recycled metal that in the next day of Brahma. So that is an issue which not many people know about, about the cosmic cycles. And here Geranda, a simple yogi from the 18th century India, which most of you haven't heard and most of the world has never heard, a simple yogi from the 18th century India gives judgment about pralaya. A, a little anonymous yogi from India, whose picture we don't have, we don't even know how this Geranda looks. Geranda simply says, you do Viparita Karani, you will not perish even at Pralaya. How important can a human being be? How extraordinary can knowledge be? How amazing can spiritual practice be? 
We don't know if Surya Deva will reach Buddhahood by the end of this day of Brahma. But Geranda says, you can. Forget about Surya Deva. Surya Deva has taken a mysterious path to his emancipation. You are here and now. Viparita Karani makes you not disappear even at Pralaya, which is a gigantic statement. But it gets better. He moves to Yoni Mudra, which is another biggie. And here Yoni Mudra is described in some funny ways. He takes about six shlokas to just describe the practice of it. And it's very confusing. Of course, those of you who studied Yoni Mudra here in Agama, you will see many of the components of it. But there is, are also a few mixed things. Because Yoni Mudra is taught by different lineages and different teachers in slightly different ways. So there exist probably 20 versions, 20 ways of doing it. Yoni Mudra, starting with Shloka 37 and going all the way to 42, and then another two shlokas to describe the effects. So he really gives eight shlokas to this mudra, more than to anyone until now. He says, perform siddhasana. Close the ears with the thumbs, the eyes with the index fingers, the nose with the middle fingers, and the mouth with the ring and little fingers. That's like you use your hands, both, like a mask. You create a mask over the head, and actually... That's not Yoni Mudra. That is a technique which is called Shanmukhi Mudra and it is told the, the Buddha, I'm sorry, the Shiva with six faces. And it's a mixture. Again, Geranda mixes a couple of techniques. For example, this gesture has no utility in the Yoni Mudra in the way we teach it here in Agama. But Geranda's version of Yoni Mudra uses also this which we didn't find here in Agama as having any special additional benefit to the practice of it. So that was one. Create this special mudra with the hands. Draw in the prana vayu by the kaki mudra and join it with apana. Draw in the prana vayu. It's a very nice formulation because when you say prana vayu it can mean air for the ignorant and it can mean the pranic energy for those who know the secrets of pranayama. So it's ambivalent language again. Draw in the pranavayu by the kaki mudra. What is kaki mudra? That's the, probably the simplest mudra in the book. It, kaki mudra means make like a crow. Mudra means gesture, and kaki is the bird called crow. So kaki, how can you make like a crow? Like this. You pretend your lips, your lips, have become, have turned into a beak, into a bird's beak, which simply means you purse your lips, you strut your lips like that, and you inhale. So basically you suck air as if you'd suck it through a thin channel, producing a little bit of letter like oo or u. It's like, like you are whistling the air in. Draw in the prana by the kaki mudra. Kaki mudra is another mudra, so you can do it without yoni mudra, together with yoni mudra. Therefore, to inhale in yoni mudra by kaki mudra is a hybridization. It's a combination of two mudras, and Geranda probably feels it makes the technique stronger. For example, in Agama, when we do pure yoni mudra, 
We don't do it with Kaki Mudra, we do it with normal inhale like in Pranayama. And join it with Apana. That's the big secret which cannot be explained out of a lot of technicalities. Basically the secret of it, like the, uh, the meaning of it, is that you are drawing in an energy and that energy is neutrally called prana, but when you go into deeper yoga, the prana itself is subdivided in five values, actually in ten values, five ma major and five minor, and out of those five major values, one of them is also called prana, which is totally stupid to call both, you know, a city, prana, I'm going to prana city, and in the prana city there is a sub-part of the city of a quadrant or a residential area which is called prana prana in prana city it's confusing you should call it another name usually it's not done the yogis call one global energy prana and then they call one aspect of that energy also prana which doesn't make them very clear again maybe on purpose maybe not and he say draw in the prana vayu by kaki mudra that's an energy corresponding to anahata chakra and join it with apana. Another one of those five energies is called apana and it manifests when you pee and when you defecate and it's an energy which exists in the root chakra in Muladhara chakra. So here he says something very complex. If you are an outsider and if you haven't done this kind of techniques with a teacher, you feel like you get lost completely. Like I have to inhale by doing the crow's beak. And I'm supposed to feel some energy and then there is an energy which must have been there before in my Muladhara Chakra. Because if it wasn't there before, then how am I supposed to join this one with it if it was not pre-existing? So does it mean that before doing this technique, I have to do another technique to load my root chakra and to have it prepared for the Prana Vayu? He doesn't explain. These are the kind of things which you learn from a teacher. Here he just says it's simple. Take the prana, an energy in the heart, and join it with apana, which is an energy in Muladhara Chakra. How do you do that? Like it's easy to say, but how do you do it? Is it simply to visualize that something from your heart just drips into your root chakra? And how would you know if it has happened? How would you know if it worked? What's the sign of success? Garanda is sealed. His lips are sealed on the details. He's just giving you a remembrance. And if I know the technique, I'm reading it and I'm saying, yeah, yeah, he teaches a slightly different version of it, but he kind of follows the path. So he basically says, inhale in a, that position with that mudra of the mouth in Siddhasana and doing a funny mudra on your, haze, on your face and then join, combine two energies in your body. This combination is like combining glycerin with nitric acid. Suddenly the resultant is disproportionately different from the two components because the resultant is nitroglycerin and it's a high potency explosive. Therefore, he says, con draw in the prana with the kaki mudra, join it with apana. And then he continues. It, the process continues way more. Contemplate the six chakras in their order. No, there are not seven chakras. There are six. In case you didn't forget, we keep telling it to everybody. 
and everybody keeps calling this one chakra. This one is not a chakra. It's a much bigger thing. So there are six chakras, and then Sahasrara is not. Sometimes we abuse the language, and even some of our teachers, and even some of our people, they say, uh, put everything in Sahasrara chakra. It's a little bit incorrect to call it Sahasrara. Nobody will die, and nobody will get offended if you do that. But strictly speaking, if you want to speak technically accurate, it's not called Sahasrara chakra. It's called Sahasrara, period. Sahasrara is not a chakra. There are six chakras, and then there is the crown chakra, which the hippies feel happy to call it the crown chakra, but they shouldn't call it the crown chakra. They should call it the crown center or something, because it's not really a chakra. So by abuse of language, it is allowed. But when Geranda teaches, Geranda is not making abuse of language in this one. He says, contemplate the six chakras, in their order, which means Muladhara, Svadhisthana, Manipura, how long for each one of them? What's the speed? What's the rhythm? It's not in the book. It's only the teachers that teach you this. It's, this is the tradition itself. So contemplate the six chakras in their order and awaken the goddess Kundalini by the mantras Hum and Hamsa. It's a totally unusual thing that a great yogi should write down mantras clearly. I have looked in two different versions of the Sanskrit text and several translations and in all of them the mantras are actually written clearly. They are written even in Sanskrit, they are written as such, which is highly, highly unusual. It shows that Geranda was not very much into the mantra tradition because people who are also in the mantra tradition, they are very paranoid about writing down mantras and if they would write them, they would write them by a name. Like, for example, the mantra Hum is called in Sanskrit Astra Mantra. So he will say, Astra means weapon, the mantra which is like a weapon. And it refers to the lightning of Indra, which is like the hammer of Thor. It's like the something which generates lightning bolts. It's like the weapon of a god. And therefore, this is the mantra of the weapon of the gods. The weapon mantra, the lightning bolt mantra. And then a yogi from another tradition would have said and activate the kundalini by using the astra mantra and the kechari bija or whatever. And if you don't know what astra mantra is, like you don't know what he's talking, like they would never write it. They would use a descriptive word or expression for it or they would use the, the description of each phoneme from the mantra of each letter from the mantra by a very special code which they have, but they would actually not write it. In Geranda Samhita, Geranda does this. He actually writes them splash. That's why I'm bound to communicate them to you as such. Although I myself working a lot with the mantric traditions, I have the respect towards this injunction of the tradition that mantras should not be freely uttered with the title of curiosity or with a title of like this, the mantras are to be held. In this text, I'm going, I'm piggybacking on Geranda's deed, and that's why since Geranda wrote them so openly, that's where they are. So he says, awaken the goddess Kundalini by the mantras Hum and Hamsa. For example, our teachers here in Kundalini Yoga, when they give initiation in Yoni Mudra and other similar techniques, that's precisely what they do. They have a whole technology 
And one part of it is that they use these mantras, it's not the complete formula actually, they use these mantras for activating the Kundalini of our students and thus getting them started. So the mantras are part of it as well. And then it's not over. Rise the Shakti, Shakti is Kundalini Shakti, rise the Shakti and the Jiva to the highest lotus. We say, up your hearts. You should soar with your hearts. He says, rise the Shakti and the Jiva. What is the Jiva? The Jiva is a short, is a nickname, a shortcut for Jivatman. Jivatman is something very important which is located in the heart. And exactly as Kundalini and Mulakhara is the basic vitality of the human being, sometimes Jivatman is called the vitality of the spirit, the vitality of the higher self. And those of you who will get to listen in Agama to the lecture in the third or fourth level about yoga asana, there you have a whole lecture about what this Jivatman is in yoga and how important it is. And there you find out that not only the body has a vitality, but the soul, there is a sort of lower muladhara and there is a higher muladhara. Exactly as there is an individual willpower in Manipura and there is a cosmic willpower in Ajna. Exactly as there is a sort of a imagination in Svadhisthana and a sort of visualization or Akasha in Vishuddha. The chakras have some correspondences in the lower three and the higher three and exactly as there is vitality of the lower order in Muladhara, there is vitality of the higher order in Anahata. The Anahata vitality is not giving you physical vitality, it's giving you enthusiasm in your soul, hope, enthusiasm. For example, the people that are chronically depressed, they have killed their Jivatman somehow. They have managed to put down their Jivatman and they have no more purpose to live for. They have no enthusiasm, no hope, and because of this they slumber into depression. Jivatman is also a very important part and people say, I had my spirits soar, my heart soared high, like you are in high spirits. That's exactly what it says here, because when people pray, the prayer starts from here, and it's like a fire, and it's like the Indian fire in which you throw butter and sesame seeds, and when you throw butter in the fire, the fire goes, Voof! and it goes in your sahasrara, because it always goes up. It goes like this, and that's why when you pray, and you have tears in your heart, and you pray with an incredible fire in your heart, that prayer goes to God. No, it's like the prophet Abraham who threw some things into the fire that was incense and the smell of incense went up to God. That's a metaphor of a prayer that goes from the heart to the crown and then it reaches its target. And therefore, here Geranda says a great thing which comes from other branches of yoga because he says, rise the Shakti, which is in Muladhara, and the Jiva, the Jivatman, which is in the heart, more precisely in Hrit Chakra, to the highest lotus. 
So it's a sublimation from Muladhara to Sahasrara, and it's like a river that carries everything in its way. It takes the jiva and puts your soul into God. It's like a prayer. It's like bhakti yoga. It's like surrender. You don't sublime only the vital energy. You sublime the energy of the soul as well. If you stay in jivatman, you are loving, enthusiastic, hopeful, an amazing human being in many ways. When many people come and say, Swami, I listened to one of your lectures, or I visited you, or we had a talk, and then I had hope again, then my aspiration was revived, that's a transmission of jiva. It's a transmission of energy at the level of anahata or hrid chakra, and it is the function of every teacher to create enthusiasm in their pupils. If I am teaching you a boring yoga, and you go home and you yawn with boredom, and you don't do it, then I'm a bad teacher, because I should give you yoga, as well as if you are open at least, some enthusiasm to pray. I should motivate you. I'm a, if I'm a motivator, I'm helping you to transform yourselves. This motivation that people say, I could become a Buddha before this universe reaches pralaya, and which motivates you to take the thumb out and do some yoga, some meditation, something, this is jiva. And this jiva means you have intensity, you have enthusiasm, you have, if you are flat, then you, do, you are doing yoga without jiva. Maybe you have vitality in muladhara, but a human being needs two types of vitality. It's like an engine that needs two types of gasoline. It's like an engine that needs gasoline and oil. It won't work without one of them. One of them is the muladhara vitality, without which you die. You are simply not able to get up of your bed because you are exhausted physically. And the other one is the vitality of the soul. I'm seeing people who look like piglets, you know, they are really well-built physically. And you can see they've got a lot of ojas in the body. And they say, I'm so finished. I'm so worn out. I'm so sloshed. Those people, it's not that they don't have muladhara. Their heart is going dead slowly, slowly. And because of this, they don't have jiva. Without jiva, the life is not worth living. Without jiva, people commit suicide. You know, it's like your body is okay, but your heart is empty. You don't have a reason to live. You don't have anything to look forward to. You, you are, your heart is black, empty voice. You are just like... No? And then, so jiva must be there. So that's why he says, rise the shakti and the jiva. Rise your soul to God. Rise your jiva to the highest lotus. That's the crown chakra, the seventh of the centers. Being full of shakti, because when you do this, there is a reaction which, again, I cannot describe to you all the technical things because then I would have to make a teaching of Shakti Chalana or in this case of Yoni Mudra. So there are many, many details. This technique, when you do it, it fills you up with energy and people who do it here in Agama, they know exactly the symptoms. Like it is measurable in some ways. And then it says being full of Shakti, and believe me, you will know if you are full of Shakti, let him identify with the Lord Shiva. 
So, because you go in Sahasrara and your energy and your jiva has gone in Sahasrara, what do you do in Sahasrara? You identify with Lord Shiva. You say, I am Shiva. My spirit is God. Aham Brahmasmi. I am Brahman. I am that. So you identify so that you can fix there. It's like you shoot a bullet and the bullet has hit the mark. You have hit the bullseye. Now you are in God. So you say, I and God are one. I am one with God. I am actually God because my consciousness is the cosmic consciousness. <clears throat> Let him identify with the Lord Shiva and contemplate the various pleasures and enjoyments and also supreme bliss. This technique, because it's so full of energy, is a technique which is touching half of it Prakriti, it's part of the world, it's energy, it's Kundalini rising, it's things which are happening in the six planes of the universe. And when it reaches the Shiva, it also crosses the bridge and it goes into Nirvana. So part of it is in Samsara and part of it is in Nirvana. And that's why it says here, center yourself in Shiva. Like you've shot your gazer up in Sahasrara. You've shot your bullet up in Sahasrara. You've hit the mark. Center yourself into Shiva and contemplate the various pleasures and enjoyments and also supreme bliss. That means there are pleasures of the world. It is a silly, ignorant, the one who says, Oh, uh, I am drinking some hot chocolate, but I don't want to acknowledge how tasty and pleasurable it is. I'm getting oral sex and I wouldn't acknowledge that it actually pleases me. That's hypocrisy. There are a lot of pleasures and enjoyments in Prakriti, but we have been taught by the religious non-tantric people of this planet that those, those pleasures are dangerous and to be feared, because if you get addicted to hot chocolate or falafels or oral sex, then you are going to forget about Nirvana and about Shiva and you will not go there. You will keep on masturbating or whatever you do and you will forget to taste that. And that's why there are two pleasures. There are the pleasures which are below the bridge and those are the 999 pleasures belonging to samsara which exist and they are not necessarily guilty or wrong. And then there is one pleasure which is above the bridge, and that is the pleasure of nirvana. That is the, the supreme bliss. That is samadhi. That is ananda. That is the divine bliss. And in this technique, Gyaranda proves clearly the tantric meaning of his message, because he says you identify with Shiva so you don't get confused, and then you contemplate the very, like the whole universe is in front of you the nirvana and the 999 pleasures which are not directly nirvana but which are still there and would be a fool he or she who would try to claim oh but they don't exist they don't matter they matter if you take now a finger and put it on the floor and hit it as hard as possible with the biggest hammer in the house you will break your bones in your finger and you will be in agony for a month and they might have to cut your finger off because of the gangrene, eventually. Like, who is the idiot to say that it doesn't matter? Oh, but it doesn't matter. You know? It's like, it matters. 
Ah, that you can be a hero and sacrifice a finger for a noble cause. And yes, I understand that you've got the balls and the testosterone and the whatever, the stamina to do that. But that's not the point. You're not trying to demonstrate anything here. It's simply a statement of the fact that in this world there are a lot of pleasures and enjoyments, which, by the way, the ascetic people are very afraid of, because they are afraid they will get addicted and blinded by them. And also there is the supreme bliss, the cherry on top of the cake, the one pleasure which supersedes all the other pleasures, and which is the supreme pleasure, the pleasure of God, the ecstasy of the cosmic consciousness. So he says you rise the energy and it creates a bridge. Part of it is in samsara and a little bit you are with one foot in the world and with one foot in Lord Shiva, in Nirvana, in the Purusha, in the transcendent spirit. Let And it continues, there is more to do. Let him contemplate the union of Shiva and Shakti as generating the world because ultimately that's the ultimate polarity of God. When God split himself in two, he became Shiva and Shakti, the yang and the yin of the universe. And from that yang and yin, the whole dance started and it continues. This is manifestation, this is samsara. And therefore, one should become aware of the fact that this world is spirit and matter. And that this dance of Shiva and Shakti, this union of spirit and matter, is generating the world. That's the correct view. That's the correct metaphysics. Let him realize that he is Brahman. Like you, when, when you see this, then you are at the level of consciousness which allows you to be one with the divine consciousness. And he concludes in the last shloka from this flabbergasting series by saying this Yoni Mudra is a supreme secret. He doesn't use the word Maha, like it's a great secret. He says para guhya, like it's supreme secret, like a very, very secret. This Yoni Mudra is a supreme secret, difficult to be obtained even by the gods. Basically, Geranda says maybe Surya Deva can't do Yoni Mudra. You can. If you have are patient and you reach to the 16th level of Agama teaching, you will be initiated in the Yoni Mudra. But it's difficult to obtain, says Geranda, even by the gods. Some gods might be interested and they won't get it. In their world, there is not an alternative of this practice. Which sounds weird, but you must not forget that the rules of the game are different depending on the karmic conditions, on the resonance and many other factors. So this Yoni Mudra is a supreme secret, difficult to be obtained even by the gods. Obtained means that they know how to do it, or even if they know how to do it, they haven't got a body to do it with. No, like how is the sun god going to sit in Siddhasana, when the body of the sun god is a ball of hydrogen, a gigantic ball of hydrogen. That's the body of Surya Deva. How is he going to sit in Siddhasana and purse his lips in Kaki Mudra? No, it's not possible. So having a physical body and being a yogi might be a huge advantage. Then you discover that the physical body may be a gift from God because it's a yantra, it's a mandala, it's a perfect instrument for invoking the divine presence. So he states something very strange. Remember 
many, many mystical texts say that in Satya Yuga, like when the world is a little bit more benign, even gods get incarnated on earth as four, five, six meter tall human beings that live a thousand years and usually have blue eyes. And the gods get a thousand years of a human body, of a modified human body. And they are doing yoga, meditation, yoni, mudra, whatever. Because when they were gods, they had lots of knowledge and lots of vision. But they didn't have a siddhasana and a kaki mudra. And therefore they come to just use the human body for its exceptional properties. To have a human body well endowed and free is a divine gift, say the Tibetan Buddhists. Only that people waste it. People waste it chaotically by wasting, like, what are you doing? I want to travel, I want to be happy, I want to... And then when you are 80 years old, you discover you dilly-dallied all your life and you just drag your feet and eventually it's not going to happen in this lifetime. Maybe in some next one before pralaya gets to kick in. And thus... Um, this statement is very fundamental. This Yoni Mudra is a supreme secret, difficult to be obtained even by the gods, but you can. Therefore, how much is it worth? No, there are people who say, oh, you guys in Agama, you're kind of selling yoga. No, we're selling the electricity, the fans, the electronic equipment, my clothes and other things. We can't sell yoga. How much would you pay for something which makes you cross beyond pralaya? How much would you pay for something which is giving you a technique which is hard to obtain even by the gods. There is no price. We can't sell the Yoni Mudra. We're not selling Yoni Mudra because it has no value. If it would have value, you'd have to give an arm and a leg for it. No, it has no value. That's why, remember that these things are much bigger than it looks, but like Jesus said, flesh and blood could not have shown you this. You have to see with the eye of your mind. You have to see with the sixth sense to be able to understand why these people were talking like this, what they were seeing there. And so this Yoni Mudra is a supreme secret, difficult to be obtained even by the gods. Once accomplished, the yogin verily enters into samadhi. Like it simply says, ha, here you have a technique of breathing, of whatever. What's the final result? It's not the lengthening of your hamstring. It's not the alignment of your knee. When you do this, the yogin enters in samadhi. Period. That's a completely different perspective on yoga than what is propagated today. And the last two shlokas still concerning the... Yoni Mudra. Now he goes to the effects. He described a little bit. He said it's difficult to obtain even by the gods and once accomplished, once entered in Samadhi. And then he goes. By the practice of this Mudra, one is absolved of mortal and venal sins. Sins, the word sin does not really exist in Sanskrit because for them sin is more like a negative karmic consequence. Like if you have done some karmically dark or shitty thing, there is going to be negative karma coming to you. And therefore, um, 
when, what they say here, this is a westernized translation. By the practice of this mudra, one is absolved of mortal and venial sins. What it means? It means that by the practice of this mudra, one can destroy the negative karma which has resulted from mortal and venal deeds. Mortal means that you kill somebody. It means murders. Or worse than that, genocide, war, things like that. And venal means sex-related, like lasciviousness, sex-oriented things, because the yogis were living in a relatively clean world, in a relatively pure world, and therefore, according to them, many people were fornicating. There were yogis who were celibate, and there were a very few yogis, a very limited number of yogis, that were continent, that were practicing the tantric path. For both of these categories, when they looked at the outside world where people fucked like rats, it was a venal world. It was a world where people took decisions with their testicles and with their ovaries, not with their brain, not with their soul, not with their spirit. And because of this, uh, they were agreeing that many, many sex that the society is sexually corrupt. There are moral codes, ethical codes, which try to control to a certain extent, which are trying to regulate some of the sexual behaviors, but ultimately the world is going often in that direction. And therefore, and he explicitates, he simply says this mudra, called Yoni Mudra by him, has the mysterious power of actually destroying karma of negative type. Karma which comes from bad things. Which is a pretty bold thought because it means, well, if you have Yoni Mudra and you are really good, you can go and do some shit and then you can run home quickly and do some Yoni Mudra. And then the shit will not hit the fan because you have stopped it before. Is it possible? Yes. Will it work? Not every time. Because sometimes the karma may kick in before you go home to do the Yoni Mudra. And then as smart as you think you are, you will be caught in offside. And that's why <coughs> human beings cannot really be smarter than the cosmic law, but they can push it. Remember that knowledge is power, as Bacon said in the medieval times. And the yogis discovered all sorts of knowledge which gave them power and it gave them sometimes a trump in the things of life. So he says, by the practice of this mudra, one is absolved of mortal and venial sins, which means you are destroying the karma which comes from those acts. Even if killing a brahmin, killing a brahmin is one of the supreme offenses in terms of crime and murder in ancient India. Like, killing a person is killing a person, but killing a Brahmin is like killing a holy man or a holy woman, and that's like double as bad. So, killing a Brahmin is an example which was chosen, like, you know, what can you bring more? Even if killing a Brahmin, somewhere I think the Shiva Samhita says, even if killing a thousand Brahmins, you know, like, it pushes the envelope. No, like, it doesn't matter as much as it is, whatever, you know. Even if killing a Brahmin or killing a fetus, 
I'm often asked, what about the sin which results from abortion? Well, in Geranda Samhita is right there, it's near killing a Brahmin, killing a fetus. He doesn't explain if it's a fetus which was born already, and that is infanticide, like King Herod, killing a small baby, killing a newborn baby, or if killing a fetus inside the womb. We don't know. It's not explained. The commentators don't find ways of translating this word better, and we don't know what was in the head of Geranda. But it's on his list of exemplary things. Even if killing a Brahmin or killing a fetus, drinking liquor, well, much less, right? I mean, there is one person in this room, mayhaps, who never drank any liquor. There are some teetotalers who come from very strict environments or families, or, but they are very seldom. No, like, if you read The Lonely Planet, one of the worst things that they've got to say about Bangkok when they want to, or Thailand, when they want to show the negative sides of Thailand, is that the damn pubs and 7-Elevens, they won't sell booze after 12 o'clock. Like, any, English, any decent Englishman wants to drink until 5 o'clock in the morning, until they drop off their feet, you know? Like, how can somebody have the cheek to take off your booze at 12 o'clock. What a cruelty. What a barbarous country Thailand can be. It's one of the nagging little things when you go in Thailand that they don't sell booze after 12 o'clock. Like, for some people, drinking liquor, but Geranda, you know, get take a cold shower. Geranda speaking in the 18th century. It's true, it's in Hinduism. In Hinduism, liquor is an offense. You lose your caste. If you drink liquor, you become an outcast, you become a pariah. No? And nobody wanted 200 years ago to be a pariah. It was one of the worst things which could happen in your life. And you would become a pariah if you would be seen or admit, having done it in private, drinking liquor. Drinking liquor meant automatic, like Orthodox Hindus, 200 years ago, from the age of zero till the age of 85, they never touched one drop of liquor. Liquor was prohibited. Exactly like in Iran. You can say that the Iranians are more close to yoga than the Americans. Because in Iran, alcohol is prohibited from the age of zero till the age of 85. There are countries where you cannot buy booze on the street. So, of course, I'm not wanting to turn this into a social analysis, but try to see that how different the environment is even when it comes to this, even if killing a Brahmin, or killing a fetus, drinking liquor, or polluting the bed of his guru. Polluting the bed of the guru is basically having sex with the wife of the guru. Like the gurus had wives. But very often it could be that their relationship was not working, or the guru was getting too old and therefore couldn't get it up. And suddenly in the inner circle of the guru there appeared three handsome, lovely young men who were doing yoga all day long. And they were virile and in top shape. And then sometimes funny things would happen. And the natural decency would say, don't abuse the trust of your spiritual father. This man took you in his house, teaches you yoga, and all you can do is get a hard-on and fuck his wife through the back door. You know, it's like... That's not very, it's abusing the trust of a teacher and of an elderly person, you know, and going there. So it was, if it's mentioned, 
it means it was sometimes regretfully happening. It was considered to be very ugly, very an abuse of confidence, and so on. So um, many people would say, uh, Swami, so if we make love to your girlfriend, we're polluting the bed of our guru or something like this. Luckily, you guys, you are in a tantric school. So as long as you don't practice immorality, this is not applying in a tantric school. But this environment is coming from old India 200 years ago. And although Geranda speaks about some things, remember that in India the guru was the man who teaches you to read, to write, who teaches you metaphysics, who teaches you meditation, dance, this. So the gurus are of many kinds. And he's not talking about tantric gurus who might be the 1% of the gurus who are coming of a different environment. The average rule was that these things are dirty. Killing a Brahmin, killing a fetus, drinking liquor or polluting the bed of his guru. Like examples. He goes like, he takes a few samples from all the corners of the universe. So he said that all these can be Absolved. Like, you can do it, and you'll get away with it. The karma can be burned. And he continues by saying clearly, all these, and many others, because these are just four examples from an ocean of negative karmic things, all these are annihilated by the practice of Yoni Mudra. Like, the karma is burned. Hence, let him practice it perseveringly. He uses the word abhyasa, which is a word from Bhagavad Gita. And abhyasa means never stand down. Never give up. You practice till you die. You practice till you faint. You practice and practice and practice and practice. So this is abhyasa. So he says, hence, therefore, because of this, let him practice it perseveringly if he wishes to attain liberation, for which he uses the word mukti, which is the classical Sanskrit word for liberation in India. Therefore, what a huge statement, how many great things were described about this Yoni Mudra, and then he says, by this you get absolved of kar negative karma, whatever your, was your misdeed in this life or in a previous life, if you killed Brahmins or thousands of people or fetuses or desecrated the bed of your mentor or preceptor or drank liquor or did the hundred million stupid things which people may do and produce negative karma, by the practice of Yoni Mudra, it can be annihilated. If any of you gets to the initiation of Yoni Mudra and then six months later you will still tell me that you have a bad karma, you will allow me to scoff ironically at you. Because it means you are a little bit stupid. Because with Yoni Mudra, if any one of you here in this room complains, oh, if I look at my life until now, I have been suffering from lack of money or from lack of sex or from lack of health or from lack of joy. And if you continue, it means you actually are masochistic and you luck, like living in that pain. Because Yoni Mudra... Geranda simply says, if you have any karmic residues which still torture you, do Yoni Mudra from morning till evening, till that karma stops. Whatever karma, you don't know what karma you have, but you can see the outcome. If you are unhappy, unhealthy, 
and a lot of other un things, it means you still have a bad karma in that field. Well, would you like to burn it? Yes. How do you burn it? Here is one method. Yoni Mudra. Go to the 16th level of Agama, get the initiation, and then retire in a forest and do it for one year, every day, many hours per day. Then see what's happening when you have done that. But the question is, maybe you like your bad karma. Maybe you actually indulge, because pigs like to roll into the mud. And everybody says, what the heck do pigs find so sweet in the mud? What do some people find so sweet in limitation and pain and agony and suffering? Apparently some people do. And that's why, remember that yoga gives, especially when you go at these deeper levels, yoga gives you a lot of keys. Not about the hips and the hamstrings. About annihilating karma. About We are talking about the big guns here. We're talking about the real huge things here. But uh, even when these things are said and written, still some people continue in that way. So that was about Yoni Mudra. Today I got carried by so many collateral stories which came with all these mythological, metaphysical and others that I actually managed to comment only two mudras and I'm not going to go with the next one because it will take too long time and it's, uh, it's the mudra which is very much related to the sexual tantra even Geranda who is not very bold into sexual yogic issues still comments on it and gives the real input on it that will be the Vajroli mudra and it is taught I will speak about it in the next satsang but we are going to stop here because it gets a little bit late and before we uh, conclude I would like to make with you a little bit of meditation of blessing those of you who know how to give a blessing give it one of the great proeminent yogis in this world at this time has just passed away today I'm talking about the famous BKS Iyengar the founder of the Iyengar styles of yoga he was 95 years of age and he passed away today that's why although we very often uh, ironize Iyengar as being a sort of a butcher yoga, gymnastic yoga, sort of materially oriented, anatomically oriented yogi. Nevertheless, BKS Iyengar made a difference and has made yoga known to tens of millions of people. His book Light on Yoga is one of the great classics of modern times, published in the late 60s or the early 70s. So. BKS Iyengar, he may be a Kali Yuga guru, like in Kali Yuga the gurus are not very bright, so he may be a bit of a Kali Yuga second class guru, but he still was one of the people who had a word to say in the second half of the 20th century on the history of yoga, and I would like us, since now he's in his bardo, he's just exited his body, I would like to send him a good thought and the meditation and that's why those of you who know stand up please and let's do a meditation on BKS Iyengar's person those of you who don't know how to give a blessing simply <coughs> express a prayer or if you are not a religious person at least a good wish express a good wish 
<coughs> like BKS Iyengar, he was not my guru, never at any stage. I didn't meet with him ever, and his lineages did not intersect with my lineages in yoga teaching. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.